Good morning. This is not a Father's Day sermon. Hope that's okay. Um, I want to start this message at a bit of an odd place, I guess. Um, I want to start by uh, talking about a Calvin and Hobbes strip that I remember seeing quite a few years ago and kind of stuck with me. It's it's hard to to relate a comic strip um, use verbally, but I'm going to try to. So in this scene, um, Calvin is outside staring at the night sky all by himself. He's outside and it's dark and there's just covered with skies, uh, stars. <clears throat> and you can see that he's somewhat awed and he's not saying anything, which is unusual for him. And then in the next frame, he suddenly yells at the sky, I'm significant. Then in the next frame, he's quiet again. And finally at the end, he adds, screamed the dust speck. And the reason that kind of stuck with me is, is because that's something we can sort of relate to sometime. When you, when you look at the sky, maybe especially in the giant scheme of things, um, where there's, you know, thousands, millions of stars in just our galaxy. And then there's, billions of us here on this earth, we can sometimes wonder, are we just a dust speck, or are we significant somehow? So uh, the purpose of this sermon is, we're going to try to settle that question. Are we significant in God's eyes, or just another human dust speck? And we're going to look at some, um, I don't know if you'd call them faith questions, I, but some big questions like, is God really paying attention to me? Is God really around? Is he nearby? Is he, or is he way off on his heavenly throne? Uh, did God really make me? And we know he made Adam and Eve. Did he really make me and you? Is God really involved in my life? So those are some big questions. And, um, I think the passage that we're looking at this morning, it's just Psalm 139, uh, does a really good job at hitting on all of those points. So if you'll turn to Psalm 139, we'll be reading that and looking at these questions. I'm going to read five or six verses at a time, and each of these readings is, um, we'll try to answer a, a, one of these questions we just looked at. Psalm 139. So is God really paying attention to me? We'll read verses 1 through 6. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought far off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a Word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You've hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. All right. So in these verses, David covers uh, pretty much every area of one's life. Sitting down, getting up, lying down, your paths, your words, your thoughts, your ways, 
pretty much nothing is missing from that list. And this is the list of things that come under God's attention. And I want to say um, pretty early on that this is not unique to David. Uh, God's attention is not unique to David. He, he tells Solomon in First Chronicles 28, he told Solomon, the Lord searches all hearts and understands all the intent of the thoughts. So God's attention is for everyone. But what kind of attention is this? Is it, is it a caring kind of attention? Because I can pay attention to something and not really care about it. Um, flies have been in our house recently. And when I'm hunting a fly, I'm paying close attention to all aspects of its life, which I hope will be a short one. I'm watching it sitting down and it's rising up and it's attempts to take the wings of the morning, I guess. It has my attention, but I'm not, I don't care about the fly. Um, and of course, God's attention for us is not like that. He's not, he's not paying attention to us so he can smack us. He's, and his attention also is not indifferent. It is a caring kind of attention. You'll see this already in, in the verses we just read where he says, you laid your hand upon me. You've hedged me behind you before and laid your hand upon me. That's a gentle kind of caring attention. That's a gentle expression there. I don't know how you feel about knowing that God knows everything about you. I think you can be kind of sobering because he is holy. He is the judge. He knows everything. Uh, should also be comforting in that whatever you're going through, it's not because God wasn't paying attention. He knows where you're stronger than you think and where you're weaker than you think. He knows everything about you. Uh, he knows that picture of me with the kids on the bulletin doesn't tell the whole story about uh, me as a dad and and uh, our experiences together. You know, should see me when the door is left open and the flies are coming in tells us sometimes gives a different picture so god knows everything he knows what's wrong with us and it's good that he knows this because he he's the he's the one who can heal us and fix our problems so if you ever wondered is god really paying attention to me personally the answer is yes c.s lewis said god has infinite attention infinite leisure to spare for each one of us, you're as much alone with him as if you were the only thing he'd ever created. And we can't fathom that. I don't think David could either. All right, next question. Well, is God near me? Is he really around? Let's start reading again in verse 7. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike. To you. So 
So God's presence, David says, is everywhere. Of course, we know that. And it is not a, a cool kind of arms folded, indifferent presence like I imagine Saul maybe felt at the stoning of Stephen. I don't know what he was feeling, but I imagine him being there kind of cold and arms folded. Instead, God's presence is, is a presence that desires to lead us and hold us. Even there, your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. And that's talking about all of these scenarios, these hypothetical scenarios David is, is putting out there. He, he doesn't want to run away from God. He's speaking in a hypothetical sense. If I wanted to run away from God, I couldn't. And God's presence is there, and it is a caring kind of presence. God was also present at the stoning of Stephen, and later he asked Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's not an unfeeling presence. So there's no place on earth where we can get beyond the reach of our Creator. And again, this is not just true of David. This is not unique to David. Uh, Paul said to the skeptics on Mars Hill, and I'm going to be referencing this message of Paul's a few times, so we'll be coming back to it. But one of the things he said to these skeptics is that God is not far from each one of us. Now, if we're being honest with ourselves, um, we'll admit it doesn't always feel that way. It doesn't always feel like God is close to us. David wrote Psalm 139. He also wrote Psalm 13, which says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? It's kind of, I find it a little nice to know that David felt that sometimes, too. It's not always just Psalm 139. Uh, so sometimes we feel far from God because there there is something wrong in us and we need to turn back to God and we have turned away from him and repentance needs to happen. But not always. Sometimes it just feels like he's not there because he's maybe not responding to our request the way we would like. He feels far away. And if you read Psalm 13, you won't see God descending and making the mountains smoke and doing some miraculous sign that impresses David and reassures him. Instead, you just see David essentially choosing to, to trust God and, and remembering his goodness, his salvation, and he chooses to keep trusting and praising him. And I think many times that's, that's what we need to do. God is near even when he doesn't feel near. And one other aspect about his nearness I want to touch on is just that he, his presence means that he can be turned to at any point when someone repents and cries out to God for mercy. He's right there for that person, whether it's Jonah in the belly of the whale, who knows all about this uttermost parts of the sea, doesn't he? Or Manasseh in an Assyrian prison, or Nebuchadnezzar maybe out in a field somewhere. God was present for these people when they turned to him. All right, next question. Did God really make me? So we know that God made Adam from the dust and Eve from a rib. But wasn't it just kind of natural processes after that? And was he really involved in how I was made? Or was it just kind of the DNA dice being rolled around? Okay, so let's read these verses. David says, 
verse 13, For you formed my inward parts, you covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed, and in your book they all were written. The days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. <clears throat> so uh, the, the phrase there, you covered me in my mother's womb, that can also be translated, you knit me together in my mother's womb. I want to talk for a second about knitting. <clears throat> See this hat here? Colleen made this. This is actually crocheting, but we're going to pretend it's knitting because no translations use the word crocheting in verse 13. It'd be kind of odd. So uh, what I know about knitting <clears throat> is that it's not crocheting, and I, two needles are involved. That's pretty much the limit. But um, I know that if you are knitting something like this hat, um, the person who is doing the knitting is involved in this in the yarn becoming a hat. Okay. Uh, the other thing, these are kind of obvious points, I think, that if you're knitting a hat like this and, and you want to make a cream-colored hat of about this size, um, you know, this. if someone knows what they're doing and this is their plan, this, this is how it's going to turn out if they're knitting a hat. All right? It's going to turn out according to your plan. So when David says, you knit me together in my mother's womb, there's two things that tells me pretty clearly. One is that God is involved somehow or another. He is involved. And if he's knitting something, he has a plan, and it's going to turn out according to his plan because he's good at what he does. He's not going to start knitting a hat and it comes out a, a sock or something. Okay. So even though there's sin and the curse and, and we know there are natural processes involved, he, he is somehow involved in how we are made. Uh, Jeremiah and Job make similar statements to what David has to say. He says, Jeremiah, uh, chapter 1, verse 5, God told Jeremiah, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Before I formed you in the womb, he says. And then Job chapter 10, this is from the ESV. Verse 8 says, Your hands fashioned and made me, and now you have destroyed me altogether. He's working through some things, poor guy. Um, then in verse 11, he says, You clothed me with skin and flesh and knit me together with bones and sinews. So God, God is involved in how we're made. Flawed, I would say, but designed. Who sinned? The disciples asked Jesus about the blind man. This man or his parents? Jesus said, neither. This happens that the works of God might be displayed in him. It was not an accident that that baby was born blind. 
even before this, the, the, the blind man, even before he was born, God had a plan for him. Uh, he was flawed, yes, like all of us. But God was involved in how he was made, like he is involved in how all, each of us was made. And, and God had a, had a plan for the blind man and an appointment with Jesus and a bright future for him. Alistair Begg, I don't know if you're familiar with him or not. He's a, a radio preacher. Uh, I heard him speak at Liberty once. He said recently, he posted this, that a child is not the product of time plus matter plus chance. A child is the product of the faithful work of a creator God. All right, let's finish reading the, the, the psalm here. This kind of switching gears a little bit, and, and it's talking about David is kind of sharing his testimony, his response to God, I guess you might say. So verse 17, How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God! How great is the sum of them! If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God! Depart from me, therefore, you bloodthirsty men! For they speak against you wickedly. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate you? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties, and see if there is any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Verse 19 comes a bit, as a, as a jolt maybe, to us, after we've read all of these sweet verses and suddenly David says, oh, that you would slay the wicked. And I think there you, you get a little hint of what can sometimes bother us, that uh, you know God often delays in doing what we think would be good and right for him to go ahead and do. Slaying the wicked, for example. It's what David wants here. But uh, it's important to remember, you know, verses like 17 and 18, that Remind us that God thinks about everything, sees a lot more than we do, thinks about everything. David says, if I would try to count his thoughts, they'd be more than the sand of the sea. And it sounds like the idea of it, or trying to do something like that, would exhaust him and put him to sleep. And then when he wakes up, God is still there. And then David goes on to, I'm not spending much time on these verses, but he's expressing his loyalty to God and his hatred of the evil and he himself then invites God's examination, testing, and leading. Which brings us to the last question, is God really involved in my life? Because sometimes when God is delaying his response, it can feel like he isn't. Is God really involved in my life? So we see this quite a few places already in this passage. Uh, we notice these verses already. Verse 5 that says, You've hedged me behind and before. That's involvement. It's talking about God's protection and providence. And laid your hand upon me. That's involvement. Verses 9 and 10. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. That's involvement. Verse 16 says... Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed, and in your book they all were written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. 
God fashioned your days. I don't even know what that means exactly, but I know that means involvement. And then the last couple of verses, search me, try me, and lead me. That's involvement. Now, there's a, I mean, there's obviously a different level of involvement for people who are, are believers or are inviting God to lead them and work in their lives. But even for unbelievers, God's involved in their lives. Uh, Daniel told King Belshazzar, he said, you failed to glorify the God who holds your breath in his hands and owns all your ways. And on Mars Hill, in that sermon, Paul made this blanket statement about everyone, saying, in him we live and move and have our being. So God is involved in your life. It's nice when you can see it, um, but it's happening even when we can't. And um, an example of a time when it happened for me, and it was special, I I told this story to my junior Sunday school class already, but this was about a year ago. I was, uh, it was, I was working, I was, I had a, um, I had a problem in my code. It was like, it was something I was working on. I can't even remember what the specific problem was right now, but I remember I spent all Friday fighting with this thing. Something was, was not working the way it was supposed to work. And, um, spent all Friday and Google wasn't helping. And then Monday, back to work. And all Monday morning, I was fighting with this thing. You know, after a while, when you get stuck on something, you start feeling kind of bad, you know, because you're getting paid and you're not making any progress. (laughs) So at some point, I asked Colleen to pray for me. And she had come down to the basement where I was working. And I said, just, can you just help me? Can you just pray that that God would show me what what the problem is here? And... I think it was, I don't know if she was even done with her prayer. I was staring at, and and I'm afraid, I was maybe not totally listening to the prayer. I was looking at the screen. And as as she was praying, I was looking at the code, and I was like, you know what, I think that might be it. And it was it. So even before her prayer was done, I felt like it was answered. So that's really nice when God does that, but he doesn't always do it that way. But he's still involved. One of the uh, ways in which he involves himself is comforting us in our affliction, is what it says in 2 Corinthians 1.4, the God who comforts us in our affliction. Now, uh, lots of times we'd prefer that he would involve himself by removing the affliction, but sometimes he chooses to involve himself by comforting us in it. And maybe the affliction is part of him searching, trying us, and leading us to the way everlasting, which we're supposed to be asking him to do. All right. One more question. Bonus question. So why all this? Why is God interested in me? God is personally interested in each of you. Why? And I think the answer starts um, with the preposition in verse 13. The start of verse 13, we have the word for. For you formed my inward parts. And that's, you know, if you reflect back on everything that comes before that, it's God's everywhere, God is, is with me everywhere, he knows all about me. 
and then verse 13 is, for you form my inward parts. And I think, the, I think that is explaining God's caring attention and presence because he made us. Simple, but true. He made you and he feels ownership. Ecclesiastes 12 says, remember your creator in the days of your youth. Uh, there, that your creator, I think, is important. He is not an impersonal creator that made everything and stepped away. He is your creator. And then a few verses later in Ecclesiastes 12, he says, someday our spirit will go back to the one who made it. That suggests to me he feels ownership of our spirits. In the Mars Hill sermon, Paul said, we're his offspring. That's true of everyone, believers and unbelievers. Ezekiel 18 is a chapter that is a favorite of mine. It talks about God having no pleasure in the death of the wicked, and he wants them to turn to him. And in verse 4, he says, Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. All souls are mine. So he, has a, he, he, he feels an ownership for us still, even those who aren't his, in the sense of, of, of putting their faith in him. He made you and wants you back. All right, real quick children's class. Do we have time for a little children's class? I know it's strange to have one at the end of a sermon, but uh, this will be very short. And uh, if they could, Milo, Mary Sue, sorry. But if they could come sit over here, if we could have the mic over here, I'm going to tell this little story that you might already know. Do you know the story? Do you know it, Zoe? Ethan? Okay. My kids have seen it. Weston? No. All right. Good. Uh, so this is a story about, um, well, let me first get the boat. Colleen's dad let me borrow this. He used it in a children's class lately. And um, he bought the boat, I think, at Hobby Lobby. And then he put the sail on it and attached a string to it because the story is about a boy who makes a boat. And then he let me borrow it. So I'm going to let you look at it while I tell the story. All right? Do you want to handle it, pass it around? You can just put it on the chair there, um, Zachary, whenever you're done. So this story, uh, it's, it's kind of like a parable. And uh, it starts off with there's this boy and his grandpa, and his grandpa is carving something. What do you think he's carving? Okay, it's not a boat. But he's carving something else. And the boy asks his grandpa, uh, what are you doing? What are you carving? And um, I'm not reading the book verbatim. But his grandpa says, I'm making something for you to remember who you are. All right? Still carving. And he says, this reminds me of something that happened to me a long time ago when I was your age or a boy. All right? So then uh, he talks about when he was a boy, he got a piece of wood and started carving and worked on it forever, many days. 
And he made a boat, like that one, sort of. And he made a sail, and he attached it to it, and he um, got a string and tied it onto the boat. How would you feel, by the way, if you had made that boat, spent weeks on it, how do you think you would feel about the boat? Like, pretty good. I would be impressed. Yeah. And it would feel special to you. So he made this boat, and he took it. He actually took it down and floated it in the stream, and he had lots of fun with it. So this is, remember, this is the, the grandpa when he was a boy. Okay. Floating it in the stream. Uh, it's got the string attached to it. And then, sure enough, one day, as always happens, disaster struck. And the string broke. And apparently the stream was really rushing along. And the boat went flying downstream. And uh, he hunted for it. Not ready for the next picture yet. He hunted for it. Can you see all right? Yeah, good. He hunted all up and down the stream for this boat. Could not find it. Very distressed and sad. But one day he went extra far down the stream. And this is what he saw. Another boy. Okay. And uh, this, this boy is playing with a boat. And as he gets closer, he recognizes, even though it's kind of beat up and the, and, the, and the sail is torn, this is his boat. So what do you think he says? Oh, well, he's got it now. I'll just go home. No, he comes up and says, that's mine. And the little boy, the other boy, I wish I had names for these. This is the grandpa boy. This is the other boy. Okay? And he's got the boat now. And he says, that's mine. I made it. He said, nope, it's mine. He said, but I made it and I lost it. And what do you think this guy said? Covering up the words. Yes, Weston? Yes, finders, keepers, losers, weepers. Okay, I don't think there are no American children who don't know that. And uh, so... This guy decides, well, what's he going to do? And thanks. Welcome, Kyle. He says, well, I'll trade you for it. So he empties out everything in his pockets to, to get the boat back, which the pockets included a rubber snake, of course, a pocket knife, marbles, and bottle caps. And this boy apparently sees value in all these things, and he says, all right, you can have it. So while he's gathering up his loot, the grandpa boy picks up his boat and goes home with his boat, and he says to his boat, well, now you're twice mine. Why do you think he said that? Weston. He made him, and then he got him again. How did he get him again? Yeah. Uh, traded, yeah. He bought him, bought him back, right? So he made him, and he bought him, twice mine. Now, did you, I don't know if you thought about this. So this is supposed to be a parable, and, and the point is that that's something God can say about each one of us. He made us, and he bought us. And then... Um, and you understand how he bought us. It's, it's through Jesus, what he did on the cross. 
So God made us and he bought us. And then the dad shows. What do you think the grandpa, sorry, the grandpa, what do you think the grandpa was carving? Yes. No. See, that's what I thought it was going to be. It was not about what, Weston? A cross. Yeah. So then he gives him the cross. Pretty neat story, right? That's all there is to it. Thank you for your attention. You can go back. So, in conclusion, God made us, God bought us. Psalm 139 answers these basic questions. Is God really paying attention to me? Yes, he is. Is he really near me? Yes, he is. Did God really make me? Yes. Is he involved in my life? Yes, he is. Why does he, matter? Why does he care so much about us? Why do we matter so much to him? Because he made us and he bought us. And we're not suspects. We're significant to him. So I think our response should be similar to David's, which is search me, try me, and lead me. God bless you.